So we've uh, been here for almost two full days, two full days of practice for this retreat. You're still all here. That's my criteria for doing well. I think you're still here. You know, this isn't this isn't easy. If this practice, this path, if it was, we'd all be enlightened. And uh, so, I just want to acknowledge that I think you're all doing great. It's a little pep talk here to start. And uh, yeah, keep going. Things tend to ease out after two or three days. Sometimes. <laughs> it's not a guarantee. <laughs> hmm. So in, in a lot of ways, the, these teachings, the teachings of the Buddha, are, are in great part a teaching on the, about impermanence, the teaching of impermanence. And this is throughout the suttas and the texts, this is the importance of connecting with this truth, this understanding is stressed over and over. And, and Andrea touched on this, this core understanding last night in her talk. We'll say a little bit more about it to begin tonight. And in a certain way, this whole path, the understanding that we're, we're gaining through our practice flows from the this simple understanding that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. Sort of a classic way that this truth of impermanence is expressed. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. And you know, we can feel like we understand this teaching. You know, we've heard it over and over if we've been to retreats or gone to meditation classes, courses. You know, meditation teachers are always talking about this. But it's worth looking to see, you know, do we really get it? Do we really understand this? Do we know it in our bones, you could say, or in our cells, somewhere deep in our core? Have we really been willing to let this understanding, this teaching in, you know, to soak ourselves in it in a way? Because if we do, if we really open to this, then it's really transforming. It opens up the whole path and it points to the very heart of, of what the Buddha was teaching. But sometimes we can fall into a superficial kind of relationship with this with this teaching and, and we hear it so much. It's so pervasive in certain circles anyway, in Buddhist circles and retreat centers and places like this. And it can become a kind of philosophical stance or a belief that we hold about a a Buddhist concept, you could say. Oh yeah, everything's impermanent, you know, it falls off the tongue easily. But if we explore it deeply and we let it touch our lives directly and intimately, beneath our concepts, beneath our ideas about our, ourselves, about the world, about it, beneath everything we think we know, it really does inform our lives in a way that's radically transforming. And, you know, we all know that things change, right? And we see it around us in the world. We see the change of seasons, you know. And we, It's winter now, and we can feel spring approaching, looming, maybe not today so much. We see the change in the seasons, or we just see over the course of a day in light and temperature. And, you know, it's the sun rises, and there's changes over the course of a day in that way. Or, 
We see our bodies aging, see change in that way. Changes in our loved ones, you know, if we have children, they grow up. They're not little anymore, they get big. Or we see changes in our parents, you know, as they age and they pass away. If we look at our own minds over the course of a day, you know, and all the changes there, and we, we go from happy to sad and from peaceful to agitated over the course of a day. And, and one minute, you know, we're desperate to get out of here. You know, we just can't take it anymore. That's all we can take. And then a little while later, we're, we're ready to sign up for a three-month retreat. You know, it's, it goes like that sometimes. Something, we have, a good, we have a good sitting, whatever a good sitting is, we're, we're signing up for the rest of our lives. We have a difficult sitting and we're out of here. So these changes that we go through, And if we look at our experience just in a single meditation period, for example, and we'll see that nothing in our experience, in that flow of experience in our life, it's just our life, right? That's what we're doing here is we're looking at our life. We're looking at nature manifesting in mind and body. And if we look at that in a single meditation period, we'll see that there's nothing in there that lasts very long. You know, look, what's our experience of body? It's this flow of changing sensations, you know. It's in constant flux. And look at our minds, you know. They're changing constantly, too. Thoughts come and go. Desires arise. They pass away. Moods and mind states arrive. It's completely unbidden. They stay a while. They go away. They change. And none of it lasts any time at all. There's nothing in that that we could hold on to, that we could somehow keep or latch on to, try to get it to stick around. And sometimes we, we meet this teaching on impermanence, this truth of impermanence. We come into a relationship with it, not through conscious choice of watching our minds and bodies in meditation, but maybe in an involuntary way, you know, through loss in our lives or through our bodies failing, perhaps. Maybe through the death of a loved one, separation in that way. People we care about, we love and care about, and, and we mourn their loss, you know. And impermanence is thrust upon us at times like this. And letting go is, is, we're forced to do it. We have no choice at times like that. You know, our expectations and our hopes, they just are disappointed or desires and they're frustrated. Everything that we planned for, that we've worked hard for, and it just falls apart. Conditions change in the world. And you know, the reality of change, of impermanence, it's, it's always teaching us about letting go. That's, that's the message there. But when we come into a connection, a relationship with impermanence in these ways of loss this involuntary way, it can make us feel bad sometimes. You know, we feel like things are taken away from us. And we feel like we're being attacked by it almost, or as though something has gone wrong. It's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to change. And we can, we can sometimes associate impermanence with, with change, and change with pain and loss, with fear, with frustration. 
in these ways. But through our practice, through this meditation, we begin to explore our relationship to the truth of impermanence. And, and we connect with a deeper understanding of it and a relationship to it that connects us to the rhythms of change that hold and inform all things, including ourselves. This is just part of the fabric of things. This is an excerpt from a poem called In Blackwater Woods. It's by Mary Oliver. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. I was reading an article fairly recently in a magazine, and uh, someone was interviewing this Zen teacher, and they asked her, what is the secret to your happiness? I guess it was a happy Zen teacher. And, uh, and the person, what is the secret to your happiness? And, and she said, the wholehearted and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. And those great one-liners, right? But there's an important, tru- an important truth that's pointed to in a statement like that. Because whenever we find ourselves in a state of non-cooperation with the unavoidable truth, say, of impermanence and change, then we suffer. And we can find ourselves living then in a position where we're, we're resisting. We're in a position of resistance and argument. We're never at ease. We can find ourselves living in a state of struggle where we're trying to hold on, keep things from happening, push things away. We don't come to a place of rest with that. We don't come to ease. We don't come to peace. But through our practice, we train ourselves to listen to our resistance, to our arguments, to our struggles with the truth of impermanence, with this truth of change. We train ourselves to listen to that as a message, as a, as a pointing, pointing to this simple understanding, the simple message of letting go. And this doesn't mean that we're walking away from or in some way ignoring or repressing things that we don't like or or that we fear, or, or that we find hard to accept. You know, it's a misunderstanding of what this letting go means. You could say it's the shadow side of it. It's like a fake kind of letting go. You know, we don't turn away from difficulties and, and things we don't want to deal with, and just, you know, we can say, oh, I'm just letting go. You know, we, can, we kind of fake it. It's a fake letting go, but we can tell, because it just doesn't feel like We've let go. We can tell when we're faking it. So really letting go in the true sense means that we're fully present with our lives, with everything that comes there. We accept the truth of things fully, completely. And at the same time, we're fully committed to the end of suffering, to the process and practice that leads to that. 
there's a famous quotation from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He once said, My religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And, you know, many of you probably, you've probably heard this statement before. It's, it's kind of gets it's out there a lot. It's very beautiful, simple, sweet, almost. It can start like just kind of a nice thing, you know, like something you might find on the inside of a card or something like that. You know, it's such a simple statement that we can dismiss it a little bit and we can miss the, the truly profound understanding that a statement like that points to. And if we really understand the truth of impermanence, if we let this teaching touch us deeply, if we let it really touch us in our core and let it start to empty us out, then the response of kindness is what remains. That's what we find there. i read you another poem. There's a few poems in my talk tonight. This is one called Kindness. It's by Naomi Shihab Nye. <clears throat> Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. And you must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. The great Indian saint Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, he once said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. So this wisdom, the wisdom of I am nothing, this isn't pointing to some kind of bleak emptiness inside. Rather, it's pointing to a could say a clear or unrestricted spaciousness of heart and mind. It's free of the separation of self and other. There's no center, periphery there. There's, there's nothing excluded in that mind and heart. And if we're nothing in this way, then there aren't any barriers to the expression of love and kindness, of care, of compassion. And so if we're nothing in that way, 
then inevitably, essentially, you could say then we become everything as a result of that. And so this practice of meditation, whatever kind of meditation we might do, it's about the transformation of the mind and the heart. Right? That's what we're engaged in here. One way you could say this, it's, it's the process of bringing them, the two together, bringing the mind and heart together. And so in this way, love and freedom are inextricably entwined. This is from J. Krishnamurti. He said, when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is like the movement of love. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. And so we practice and we cultivate this quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, of care. We cultivate this not only for its own sake, as this beautiful mind state, beautiful wholesome state, but also as a, as a really powerful support for the practice of liberation. It's a fundamental kind of support. It's a source of strength and courage in our lives, as we walk this path, and it's an essential aspect of freedom. And so it really forms a crucial part of the ground that our practice rests upon, this quality of care, of kindness, of love. It really is what allows our practice to unfold, to develop, to flourish. Loving kindness, it engenders qualities of acceptance and patience, fearlessness, and without these, our practice is not going to progress and it's not going to unfold. It won't deepen. We have to have these qualities of acceptance and patience, of courage. And metta has the characteristics of, characteristic of softening our minds and hearts, increases their pliability, increases the mind's pliability, makes it more spacious, puts it at ease. And when our mind our heart are open and gentle and pliable, flexible. And this allows clear seeing and wisdom to arise much more easily. And so this quality of heart, this quality of kindness, of care, of friendliness, is not only compatible with the path of awakening, but it actually enhances the movement towards understanding and freedom. <clears throat> And when our mind and our heart are, are steeped in this quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, we're less reactive, we have more patience, as I said, much more ability to be with difficult experiences which are guaranteed to come up if we keep at this. There's great strength and courage there. And you could say that the energy of metta, of loving-kindness, is the energy of connection and acceptance. 
And it's a quality that arises naturally, really organically, in our practice, in our hearts, as we begin to penetrate and start to abandon the layers of conditioning and patterns of reactivity that operate so much in our lives a lot of the time. These habits that tend to cloud our minds, to obscure the clarity of the mind, that tend to close us down, to shut us down, that tend to lead us away from connection, away from freedom, that often condition feelings of separation and fear. Once Someone was once interviewing the Dalai Lama and they asked him why he thought so many people found him irresistible. People who have no idea who he is find him irresistible. You know, and he'll do a free, he did a free thing in Central Park, I remember reading, they thought, oh, maybe, you know, 50,000 people will come, and half a million people showed up. Who, you know, just, people are drawn to him. You know, you see his picture and you smile, right? And so someone said, why do you think that's the case? And this is what he said. I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated, but in my heart I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. And we might have been lucky to meet someone like this in our lives, or we read about them. This inspires us. You know, and they just seem to embody, to exemplify and embody qualities of love and kindness. It just seems to what they're made of, compassion. I had the really good fortune <clears throat> to meet on a few occasions a, a very famous Cambodian monk, some of you might have heard of, named Venerable Mahagosananda. He was the what's called the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. He's sort of the king of the Sangha. And he was very active in his life in working to ban landmines, the use of landmines uh, worldwide. He used to lead these marches across parts of Cambodia where there were still mines in the ground. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times. And um, there's this great picture at, um, well, I've seen it at the Spirit Rock Center. It's, it's Mahagosananda and the Dalai Lama, and they're, they're bowing to one another, and they're bent almost over you know, to the ground. Each one is trying to get lower than the other one. <laughs> Just show more, show the greater respect. And I, I remember once, in his later years, he was living at a small uh, Cambodian monastery near, in Massachusetts, near the meditation center, where I've spent a lot of time over the years. And um, I went to see him just to pay respects once. And you know, he didn't know me. I wasn't like a good friend of his. I just would go and see him sometimes. And um, and he he was suffering from some uh, dementia or Alzheimer's kinds of symptoms. Who knows what it was? But he um, he'd gotten quite simple, very childlike in some ways. And I went in to say hello and pay respects. And he he started taking things off of his shelves, just stuff that was there, bars, soap, or you know, different things, and giving them to me, and just beaming.
and you know, being around him is just like being bathed in love and light. I think I mentioned, um, Andrian might have mentioned also, but we both have spent a lot of time in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills. And uh, I just got back from there a few weeks ago. Um, I've been helping with this retreat uh, for years in various ways. In the last couple of years, I've been helping to teach uh, along with um, another teacher, Western teacher, and then the main teacher is the, the abbot of the monastery there at Chaswa, Sayadaw Ulakana. And I love it there. And uh, since I've gone there so much, since 1997, I've got, there are a lot of friends and people that I've gotten very close to in that area. And uh, there's a monk there, a couple of monks I want to mention, uh, that, that we, we see every year. One of them we've nicknamed the Happy Sayadaw. He's um, just turning 97 now. And he's like a skeleton wrapped in skin. He's just so thin. And he's, uh, he's the happiest being I have ever met, um, by far. And he loves these wild gestures. He's, he's very... This last time, I'll just tell you a little story. He was, we went over to see him the first time, and we went into his little hut, where he sometimes is, and, and it was just stacked to the ceiling with stuff everywhere, and we had to kind of find our way in, and he was in there sitting in his chair, and there were a couple of nuns and a... Uh, Another woman was there, and they were seemed to be organizing things. And it was like, you know, a warehouse. It's full of stuff. And he said he was having a party for his 97th birthday. And he was giving, he was going to have lunch for 200 people, 200 monks. And he was he had presents for everybody, just giving stuff away. He was, ah, it's this big party. He was so happy. And... Uh, and there's another monk who's, who I, who's younger... And he lives in a small monastery, and there's a cave there where I've spent some time on retreat once. And, and his, he's very quiet. He's not so exuberant. But in both of these cases, there's this feeling of um, so much love. And it's worth it to me to fly to Burma halfway around the world just to sit with them. just to sit there for a few minutes. And when we're with people like this, if we're that lucky, you know, they, they relate to us as though we're the most important person in the world at that time when we're there. You know, they're there, they're totally present for us. And they seem to hold us in this field of love and friendliness. And it's not because of who we are. It's very impersonal in a certain way. It's just because we are humans or just because we're living beings. You don't have to be human. It's just because we are. For the fact that we are, that's enough. And when I bring people like this to mind, we think of people like this, or maybe we've met them, they point to this possibility that we actually, one could live from a place of unconditional love. You actually could live from that. <clears throat> You know, and sometimes we feel like we're, we're just born with a certain amount of good qualities like love, kindness. You know, it's just the way it is. We're born and we're, you know, we got maybe a little bit and that's the way it is. And we'll never be as loving as someone like 
the Dalai Lama, perhaps. We bring them to mind. We could we compare ourselves with someone like that and we think, well, we'll never measure up. We'll always come up short. But, you know, we it's not just something to admire in another being, quality like this. You know, we can develop them. We actually can develop this in our minds and hearts and within ourselves. You know, things are malleable. Minds and hearts are malleable. There's nothing static or fixed there. If that if it wasn't true, then be no point to coming on retreat. If things weren't changeable. And so we can cultivate this quality of heart, of mind. And just through our practice it is cultivated. It just happens, it happens despite us. This practice is really great because if we just punch in and punch out, if we just do that, I mean, I am a testimony to this. If you just put in your time, you can be kind of a remedial yogi like me. Put in your time and something and good things will come. I will promise you. This is a 100% guarantee. If you have perseverance and patience and stick with it, good things will come. So we, you know, because it's, and it's not, luckily it's not up to us. If it was up to us, it would be a setup for failure. But if we just put in our time with sincerity, things change and happen. So this quality of loving kindness, it's this, you could say it's, I think of it as a generosity of heart. It's a generous heart. It's a heart that's open-handed. This is the, the gesture in this mudra in Buddhist, you know, you see Buddha's statues and some are like this. And this one is touching the earth, the Bhumispata mudra here, calling the earth to witness the Buddha's right to be there. And there's all teaching mudras. And, and the Abhaya mudra, fearless, no fear. And this is the Dana mudra, is this open-handed. So it's an open-handed heart, an open heart. And it's just, it wishes well. It's a heart of benevolence. just wishes well. It seeks the well-being and happiness of all beings. And it doesn't ask for anything in return. It's part of the beauty of that. It's just, put it out there. It doesn't want, doesn't need anything back. It's not seeking self-benefit. It just touches this universal wish that all beings have to be happy. All beings share this wish to be at ease, to be happy. And this is true even for those who seem to be doing everything possible to make themselves and everybody else unhappy. To seem to be just going out of their way to cause suffering. But underneath it, they want to be happy. They just are really confused about what would bring happiness. Someone in a talk, I think it was Joseph Goldstein, once I heard this this uh, statement. I think it's from the, the Code of the Samurai Warriors in Japan. It says, I make my mind my friend. That's a good idea. Make your mind your friend. You know, we can approach our practice often like we're 
we're setting out into battle, you know, and we set up a situation where we're in contention with our experience in some way, you know. We're not having an attitude where we're going to befriend, make friends with our hearts and minds. You know, we have an adversarial relationship there, and it's, it's either an enemy to be subdued or, or a problem to be fixed. You know, there's, it's not right. We need to fix it. And we can find ourselves relating to our experience, to what our minds offer us with judgment, criticism. It's not right. But what this practice requires is that we bring this the intention to understand rather than to judge. We need acceptance rather than resistance and struggle. And we need kindness instead of blame. This reminds me, there was the time when if you read the story of the, the Buddha's, or the Buddha-to-be, the Buddha's life, and uh, the time when he was the Bodhisattva practicing before his enlightenment. And there he spent a six-year period, it said, practicing these very extreme austerities. You know, very extreme. And that was practice at that time in, in India, and it actually still is some of these practices all kinds of things that people would do, trying to subdue their egos by, you know, mortification of the flesh and and forcibly subduing the mind, trying to beat it into submission. And these are practices that were done. This is at one point he described some of his practices. This is one of the things that he said. He said, I had the thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my mind. And then, as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him, so with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind. And sweat ran from my armpits as I did so. Sounds kind of extreme, right? (laughs) I mean, we probably aren't going quite that far. But it's worth looking to see how we are approaching our practice, you know. And is there some way, on some level, are we crushing our mind with our mind? And can we instead learn to make friends with our minds and hearts? You know, this mind, this heart, that's... It's the only one we've got, right? Might as well befriend it. Treat it with kindness. It will get us further. It doesn't mean that we have to love the contents of our mind. You know, a lot of the time it's not that beautiful, right? Is there anyone here who would like to broadcast the contents of their mind over a loudspeaker (laughs) for the rest of us to hear? (laughs) I mean, you know, it would be embarrassing at best, right? It's not that we have to love the contents of it, but we can cultivate an attitude of friendliness and acceptance, train ourselves, teach ourselves to befriend it, to befriend our minds. You know, the Buddha, when he was doing those austerities and this thing I read, 
here. And he got to the point where he was had practically starved himself to death. And then he had a memory then of a time when he was a boy and he was hanging out under a tree in the shade and watching his father was doing a plowing ceremony as his uh, as he needed to do as part of his role as a as a king and and he just was relaxing there and he went into a kind of spontaneously naturally went into a meditative state a state of calm and ease of concentration and he remembered that when he was practicing these austerities and he thought to himself oh maybe that's the way I had the thought, maybe this is the way. And then I realized this would be the way. And so he realized this extreme kind of practice was, was not going to get him anywhere. That actually a more kind, friendly way of practicing would be more useful. When I, I used to live in San Francisco, I lived there for about 10 years, and, and at, during part of that time I, I worked as a volunteer with this program that was studying the migration of hawks through the Golden Gate area there, where the, um, it's kind of a narrow crossing uh, from land to land where the Golden Gate Bridge is, and, and hawks that fly down the coast, they don't like to fly over water very much, so they cross where it's narrow there, and so they kind of get funneled through that area. And um, on the, the Marin County side, away from San Francisco side, in the hills there, there are a lot of hawks at certain all year round, but especially in the, in the fall migration time and again in the spring. In the spring, they're more scattered out. In the fall, for some reason, they, they tend to be a lot of them there. And, and so I was helping this program that was studying the the numbers, counting the numbers there and, and the different kinds of hawks that come through and we were um, trapping them carefully and, and banding them so that we could um, keep track of where they went and you know, was trying to help preserve habitat. It was, a, it was a good study even though we were kind of hassling these birds a bit. Um, but we tried to be careful and so I had to learn how to hold one because when you band one you have to hold them. And a red-tailed hawk is a big bird and a strong bird and a fierce bird and um, you have to hold them carefully because birds have hollow bones and they're easy to injure but they're strong and a hawk you know they'll put a talon through your thumb real quick if you give them the chance or they'll bite you (laughs) and I was bitten and taloned (laughs) and so you have to hold them really gently and really firmly really interesting combination of of gentle, firm way that you hold them. And that's a good way to relate to our minds and hearts. Hold them gently and firmly. So we don't let our minds maybe run all over the place and just go with that. But at the same time, we we don't crush them. We don't hold them too tightly. Beat them down in some way. So we make our mind, we make friends with our minds, with our hearts. We bring care and friendliness there. We receive our life into this field of friendliness. Teacher Sayadaw Ujotika, a Burmese teacher, he said in, a, in one of his books, how can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness. By really watching your mind, really paying attention throughout the day, 
And then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually your mind will become purer and it will become your friend. So there's a teaching that's, maybe it sounds kind of simple and obvious when we hear it, but it has really far-reaching consequences in our lives. The Buddha once said, that which one frequently thinks about and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. That which we frequently think about and ponder becomes the inclination of our mind. And this points to the way that habitual patterns of thinking are formed. And, you know, if we pay attention, we can see how this happens, how this process works. It's just a natural unfolding of cause and effect. If, If we tend to think in one way, then it's like we wear a groove there. The mind will tend to follow down that. And, you know, we can feel like we have no choice, you know, as though our thoughts and our reactions to them are unavoidable. But we actually have some choice in this. And, you know, we can't, we can't control our thinking. You know, much of the time, maybe most of the time, our thoughts arise unbidden. It's just, we have to live with that. It's just our conditioning playing itself out. And we can't control it completely. But we can pay attention, and to some extent we can choose what we think about, what we reflect on. We can, we can incline the mind in certain ways. And if we incline our minds to thoughts of love and care and well-wishing, if we incline the mind to friendliness, then this becomes more and more the way that we relate in the world. It becomes the natural response of the mind. We tend to go in that direction. So we can train it in this way. You know, sometimes when we undertake a practice of like loving kindness, or we can just notice in our own minds and hearts, sometimes there's this feeling that we're not worthy of love. You know, we see we see ways that we have lived or things that we've done. Somehow there's this conditioning that show, seems to show up a lot where we feel like we're not worthy, or we see we think of others and we think, well, they're maybe they're not worthy of love you know and there's this feeling where we we have to somehow fix ourselves these tragically flawed personalities to fix them before we can be worthy of love but this quality of friendliness friendliness doesn't demand that we be perfect and you know the Buddha never said you know, that we have to somehow prove ourselves worthy of love before we can practice loving kindness for ourselves. He didn't say, find someone who is without any flaws and has no irritating habits and then practice loving kindness for them. You know, that's cultivate love for, for this flawless person. What he did say what the Buddha did say is that one could search over the entire universe in all possible realms and we could never and never find anyone more worthy of love than one is oneself. That you couldn't find anyone more worthy of love than you are, than each of us is. 
And that's really a powerful statement. It's worth reflecting on that. And you know, what is it that makes us worthy? It's just the fact that we're sentient beings. That makes us worthy of love, that we're living beings. That's all we have to do, right? We're pre-qualified for our worthiness. And you know, we don't demand that our friends be perfect, do we? Usually we don't before we're going to be friendly with them. You know, that's one of the marks of real friendship is that we accept people for who they are. You know, we take the whole package. We might like to point out things where they're maybe getting a little off. We don't demand that they be perfect. There's a definition in one of the texts where it's said that the proximate cause for the arising of loving-kindness of metta is seeing lovableness in beings. And it's said that the foundation of it, its footing, is seeing with kindness. Like that, seeing lovableness and seeing with kindness. You know, and we're all a mixed package. There's good things there and things that aren't so beautiful and, you know, nice qualities and stuff that doesn't look so good. Reminds me of this quotation from Suzuki Roshi, the famous Zen teacher. He once said to his students, you're all perfect just as you are and you could use a little work. You know, so we have kind of both of those things going on. But we can focus a lot on the things we don't like in ourselves or in others. You know, the things that aren't so lovable, we can see through unkindness rather than kindness. This tends to condition fear and judging and aversion and separation in our hearts. But we can make a conscious decision to focus on the goodness in ourselves and others. And it doesn't mean that we pretend that we're perfect, that we don't couldn't use a little work, right? That's why we're here. We can see that we could use a little work. We don't pretend that we're perfect or that others are perfect. And it doesn't mean that we don't make efforts to improve to live with more kindness and wisdom. But it's a choice about where we put our attention, you could say. And so we can make a conscious decision to focus on the good in ourselves and others and create a feel of goodwill in the world. It really changes the way we live. And a simple way to find this goodness is to connect with this shared wish to be that all beings have All beings share this wish to be happy. That's an inherently lovable wish, right? Something good in that. There's a quality of goodness in that wish. And we can also connect with suffering. We all know suffering. We all have that in our lives. All beings. And we all wish to be free of it. We connect with that. We connect with these larger, more universal things that are true for all beings, bigger than our individual lives and, you know, the mixed blessing that we all are. Running out of time. Hmm. So it's, I'll just end with a little bit more. Something that's really important to keep in mind with 
metta practice and with any meditation, with mindfulness practice, with any meditative practice, is it's important to keep in mind that it's a practice of purification. And so a lot of the time, what happens is that things don't feel so good. A lot of our experience doesn't look so beautiful, doesn't feel so great, and a lot of stuff will come up. Everything eventually will come up that's in there. And a lot of it is going to be hard to be with and painful to see. And so we have to be really careful not to judge ourselves or the practice harshly when this happens and remind ourselves that what we're doing when we practice metta, what we're doing when we cultivate mindfulness, is we're planting seeds. and We're forming powerful intentions in the mind, intentions of wisdom and kindness. It's like a seed that we're planting. And our job is to plant the seeds, and they'll sprout and they'll grow and they'll bear fruit in their own time. And we can't make them grow. You know, it's like if we had a flower, a bud, a flower bud, you know, we can't pull it open, pull the petals open because we want to see the flower. We have to let it open in its own time. We'll just destroy it. And so it's really careful to be mindful of expectations that we might have for any one retreat or for how things should look or feel and remind ourselves that this practice really requires patience and perseverance and and letting go of expectations about how it should unfold and the way it should feel and look. And our job is just to plant those seeds. And they do sprout. It's kind of a miracle. The Dalai Lama, I'm quoting him a lot tonight, he once said, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. Another one of those deceptively simple statements. It's a good, a good plan, a good idea. And you know, it always is possible. It's not easy, maybe, but the possibility is there. So that's your assignment. Be kind whenever you can. I'm going to read you one more poem. This is one of my very favoritest poems. It's called The Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin. It's just a metta wish for you. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains and the ways you go. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. 
May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So we'll sit quietly for just a minute and let these words fall away and I'll ring the bell and we'll have about half an hour of walking before the last sitting in the metta chanting. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.